Welcome, everyone, to Square One, a podcast series run by the Harvard Association for Law and Business, one of the largest student-run organizations at Harvard Law School. My name is Ramin Sheth, and I'm a current member of the advisory board for the Harvard Association for Law and Business. Today, we're incredibly excited to be joined by Chad Ho, Senior Vice President and General Counsel at Hulu. Chad, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Ramin. Podcast series is a great idea. I wish I wish I had these around when I was a student. So, Chad, you know, maybe it'd be helpful to take a step back and, and talk about your journey prior to Hulu. You know, you graduated from Harvard Law School and you went on to a familiar career path, you know, working at a couple law firms. After stints at O'Melveny and Latham and Watkins, you transitioned over to being an in house counsel. You spent time at ABC and MySpace and then eventually found yourself at Hulu. So talk a bit more about your early career, you know, what led you to pursue in-house opportunities, specifically in entertainment, and then how you ended up at Hulu. And, you know, I think interestingly, during the company's very early tenure. Sure. Uh, You know how some people have a very clear vision for what they want to do. Uh, I was not one of those people. I mean, you make (laughs) what you just described there sound very detailed and organized, and it, it certainly... Uh, hasn't always felt that way to me. I mean, going even further back, I wasn't sure I wanted to attend law school at all. A part of me felt business school was my calling, and this lack of uncertainty continued with me for the first few years of my career, you know, if I'm being perfectly candid. And, you know, as you mentioned, um, my first job after clerking for a year um, out of law school was working at O'Malveny. Uh, I began as a litigator. In those days, law school steered you into litigation by default, unless you made a deliberate effort to learn about transactional work. Nowadays, there are more opportunities for students to gain exposure to transactional work, and I think they're a little bit more prepared in terms of what they might be interested in. For me, I mean, after a couple years of litigation, because that's really the only exposure I had had, I decided to pursue corporate work because I just didn't feel like I was enjoying the litigation work that I was getting a chance to do. And it was pretty exciting work. I actually took 40 depositions, if you can believe that, in my first year, oh, wow. um, which is almost unheard of. But I didn't enjoy that. And I thought, if I'm not enjoying this, I'm really not destined to be a litigator. So I decided to switch to do corporate work, and shortly after that, I made the move from Los Angeles to go to Silicon Valley to join Latham's corporate practice, focusing on venture capital startup work. And that's when I really started to find my stride in private practice. I found it a lot more enjoyable than litigation work. Then at Latham, I got a call about an opening at ABC Television. Uh, Going into entertainment was not something I had ever really thought about. In fact, O'Melveny had and has still to this day a robust entertainment practice, and I never even explored that while I was there, Hmm. just to give you some perspective. Uh, I also felt like I found a home at Latham and could see making a career there. So I wasn't looking to move in-house per se, But as I thought about it more, I came to the conclusion that going in-house would give me more of an opportunity to learn about the business, which, as I mentioned before, that's always been an interest of mine. So after a couple years at ABC, I had the opportunity to join what was then a small company 
my space as its deputy general counsel. Uh, I guess actually, as I think about it, it's now still a small company. <laughs> um, but in between, it was much larger. Uh, a lot of people forget that. Yep. Uh, I, I came on board as employee number 70. And in a couple short years, we had over 1,200 people. Wow. Uh, you know, while I was in MySpace, Fox acquired us. And, and shortly after that, Fox began to speak to NBC about creating a joint venture to aggregate TV shows. Uh, the company didn't even have a name yet. Uh, you know, given my background with media and technology, my, my name was thrown in the ring as a potential general counsel for this new company. When they first approached me about my interest, I wasn't sure it actually made sense for me to leave MySpace. I mean, again, people forget, but back in 2007, it was the number one most popular website. You know, the notion of going to a company that didn't even have a name yet was daunting. Uh, but the more I learned about the company, which we you know, later named Hulu, the more excited I got about the potential to build something really special and to be a part of it from the very start. So I took the opportunity, and, and you know, I'm, I'm happy I did. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting the way you laid out the story, right? I mean, I heard a couple of different nuggets there, which I think really resonate, which is, you know, one, um, almost the way I was phrasing the moves that you made, you're right, felt very linear and felt very thought out. But I think um, as a lot of these conversations, you know, we've had here unfold, a lot of, you know, these kinds of moves actually do feel disorganized at the time. Um, and many of the opportunities even spring up from completely organic bases that are very difficult to, to plan out. But it seems like you have found your stride in terms of, you know, kind of the nexus of law and business. You fast forward almost a decade and, you know, you're an executive at Hulu and, and the company has grown leaps and bounds, right, from what you were just mentioning of an unnamed company to a company that is a household name and easily doing over a billion in revenue. So you've had the unique experience of really seeing a company grow up before your eyes. And I think in today's climate, had an arguably even more unique tenure of actually staying at one company. So talk a bit more about how your role has changed from you know that pure kind of startup, we didn't even know the name of the company, um, to being, a, being an executive of a global billion-dollar company and, and you know what you've learned and why you've continued to stay. You're right. Uh, particularly in technology, people tend to pick up every year or two and go somewhere else. And I was that way. I mean, prior to my job at Hulu, I'd never been at a place for more than two and a half years. And now, like you said, I'm, I'm going on 10 years here. You know, I started as employee number 17. I'm now the third most tenured uh, employee out of the roughly you know, about 1,600 or so at the company right now. You know, I was the first and only lawyer, so I had to do everything. I mean, I remember starting two weeks before the actual launch of the service, uh, and I had to do all the work that was necessary to get that going. I mean, I had to close content deals so viewers had programs to watch. I had to close advertising deals to help fund the service. I had to make sure we had a privacy policy and a terms of use. You know, I had to close licensing deals for the backend technology to serve the videos and so on. So, you know, I was really, you know, more than elbows deep in all of it uh, on the ground floor trying to get things right just so we could launch the service. Now, you know, I oversee a department of 
more than 30 or so lawyers. And because the business does not depend on me for day-to-day operations, I have the opportunity to be much more strategic and proactive in my role. You know, for example, I think about things like, you know, what is the scope of our content rights? Uh, you know, what, what should that be? What are the optimal ways to structure our deals? What's the what's the best strategy for us to deal with patent trolls? You know, how how can we align you know, our risk management policies with our business goals? So, you know, I just have an opportunity to be a lot more thoughtful and, and, and less reactive, more proactive. And then on the manager front, you know, I spend a lot of time nowadays really thinking about how to foster career development for the people on my team. You know, that's really a priority of mine. And, you know, and I'm also just thinking more broadly about helping to develop a next generation of leaders in law. I mean, I think that's the way you engender loyalty at a company. And I've been fortunate to have a really good team and and I want to reward them and make Hulu a place that they can have long-term careers. You know, in terms of, you know, why do I stick around? I mean, there's a lot of variety in what I do day to day. I mean, life at Hulu tends to be very unpredictable. You know, I come in every day, I've got my list of, you know, call it seven to ten things to do on my list. And rarely does the day follow script. One day I'll focus on governance. Another time it's a litigation matter. You know, another day it's a key business transaction. But... You know, there's, there's always something fresh and new. And then I also love how our business and industry is ever-changing. I mean, back in 2007, Hulu was a free website where you could catch up on the latest episodes of TV shows. And if you just fast forward, you know, a few years later, we were a subscription service, which is now actually our core business. You know, we used to be ad-supported. Now we offer a commercial-free plan. Now we produce our own original content. You know, we're adding movies and kids content more recently. So our business model, our business strategy, it's always evolving. You know, I like to half joke that we spend all this time and effort closing these complex transactions. And then six months later, you know, the deals that we did, they're in a drawer and they're obsolete. Uh, And that's just the reality of the world that, you know, we live in. But that's part of what makes it so fun uh, and exciting. And, and that's a big part of why I stay. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think, you know, a couple of the points that you hit on there in terms of the business and the industry actually changing um, and your day not falling script is, is really interesting, right? Because, you know, let's, let's talk about, let's actually pick up on that note. Let's talk about a little bit more about Hulu and the actual business, you know, because there's, there's a lot going on in the industry today. You know, the competition in the space is fierce and it's, it's rapidly growing, especially around the content piece, right? So you alluded to, you know, Hulu's business model in many ways has started to change by creating original content. And I think, you know, we're actually starting to see the strength of creating original content. And we're seeing some separation amongst the pack. And, you know, my hypothesis is really with advances in technology. I, you know, I think we're really in the early innings of, of this fight and seeing, you know, how this landscape plays out. You know, it was really interesting to see, Jeff Bezos at the Oscars and, you know, just pick up on the idea that even historically non-traditional players like an Amazon or an Apple or so 
we'll start to aggressively get into the content space. Um, it, it gives a sense to the competitive advantage that content will play. So how do you, you know, diving a little bit more actually into the strategy side and, and the industry, how do you see this piece playing out over the next couple of years? You know, do companies bring more talent in-house, like in-house production folks, um, designers, content writers? Um, do you strike content partnerships um, with, it can be either up-and-coming companies or it can be, um, you know, existing players? Or, you know, is it all about aggressive spending to, to buy up rights in existing audiences? You know, as competition increases, you know, the companies in this space are coming to the realization that they need a way to differentiate their services with, you know, exclusive content. I mean, at least that's one of the levers that, that we have. And as it becomes more expensive to buy, you know, broadcast and cable content exclusively, and even then, what you'd be buying will have already aired, right? Yep. You know, so everyone is just mobilizing to produce their own original content. And that's a big part of why, you know, Hulu jumped into this game a few years ago. And to show you how far, you know, the industry has progressed, I mean, it used to be the case that talent, like writers and, and, and producers, would shop potential TV shows to the broadcast nets first. And then they'd go to the cable networks. And only if they couldn't get a deal, then you'd come talk to the online video companies. You know, now you've got companies like Hulu and Netflix and Amazon. You know, we're all taking pitches uh, from everyone and bidding against all of the traditional players. You know, so we'll be negotiating for the rights, you know, in the same uh, negotiation as an HBO, you know, or an ABC television. And the reason we can do that is we're spending the same dollars, if not more. So one of the things you mentioned was, you know, is it all about aggressive spending? I mean, that's a big part of it, you know, and that I think is, isn't exclusive to some of the other things you talked about, but it's definitely a big part of it. I mean, content's expensive and you have to pay a top dollar. Uh, you know, for example, Hulu uh, last year landed the TV rights to a Stephen King book, Eleven twenty two sixty three, which is about the assassination of JFK. And we were able to hire J.J. Abrams, you know, the renowned producer for franchises like uh, Star Wars and Star Trek, to executive produce. And we engaged James Franco to star. And we've got another show, a Hulu original called The Path, uh, which stars Aaron Paul and Michelle Monaghan. You know, and, and they don't come cheap. Uh, and then next month, well, we're pretty excited about this new original show we plan to release called Handmaid's Tale, which is based on the, the best-selling novel by Margaret Atwood, and that's going to star Elizabeth Moss. So again, you know, spending top dollar. I think what you'll also see is newer companies like Hulu, for example, we don't yet have an in-house studio, right? We tend to partner with other studios and we divvy up the rights in terms of things that, you know, Hulu would tend to focus on versus what they might in terms of like international distribution, for example. Uh, but eventually, you know, you get to a point where it does make sense to, to form your own in-house studio and Netflix, you know, has done that. And 
they hire a lot of talent in-house. And I think you'll start to see more and more of the online video distributors doing everything that traditional networks are doing, you know, from forming their own studios to locking up talent to first look and overall deals. I mean, I think that's just the, the way, I mean, it's not just the way for the future, I mean, it's, it's already part of the present. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that makes a lot of sense, right? And I think it it's interesting because you start to see the transition a bit also of, I think the first wave of, of creating content is the in-house production studios um, and, and that moving in that direction, as you're mentioning. I wonder what the implications are down the line for, you know, content that historically the cable networks have had a total monopoly on, right? You know, so I, when I think of an example, I'm a huge sports guy and I think actually one of the most interesting stories in the business world right now is is ESPN. You know, ESPN is losing scores of subscribers month over month. And the past Q4, you know, was one of the worst quarters in the company. You know, they lost more than 4 million subscribers over the course of last year itself. And interestingly for their business model, you know, on the cost side, they're on the hook to spend something to the tune of over $7 billion on content, you know, which, which really actually spells a lot of trouble, you know, with a dwindling customer base as viewership goes away from classic cable, as you were mentioning, and the company is in a precarious position and, and a lot of questions come up, right? You know, do you continue to buy this content? Um, because it's not just content that creates value for ESPN from the perspective of showing the content. It's all the ancillary content they get to create too. Sports center, highlight reels, um, push notifications of different kinds of media clips. Um, but the secondary question I, I kind of wonder sometimes too, is, you know, a lot of folks in, in the space look at it as a liability, I often wonder, you know, without knowing anything about the insides of, of the business, is that actually a great opportunity for a, for a player like ESPN, right? Where you've already got an existing viewer base and you are on the hook for a, a significant amount of content, but, you know, you can change your, can you change your stack essentially to leverage that content um, with, you know, AR, VR, and other new technologies to create, you know, better viewership experiences, which I have to imagine is is top of mind for for all media companies. So, you know, a lot to unpack there, but how do you, how do you kind of see that space, whether it's ESPN as a specific example or not, but some of the things like, you know, actual live events, um, and, and, uh, live sporting events or, uh, presidential debates, et cetera. How do you see that space start to play out? You know, that, like you said, it's a really, you know, interesting and quickly developing market. I actually, I don't think it's about a specific genre of content. You know, um, I don't think the concern is with the content. I mean, no one says we just don't like ESPN, right? Right. Um, The concern that people have is, you know, we like ESPN, but we don't like the fact that in order to get it, I've got to pay, you know, $150 to my cable or satellite company to acquire it. Yep. So... You know, our philosophy here at Hulu is there will always be demand for all types of content, you know, because users have different tastes. You know, we just don't see that changing. You know, some people will love sports, some people will love news, some people will love drama, some people will love comedy, some people will like, you know, what is traditionally, you know, more associated with cable content, some people will like, you know, family or kids content. You know, that that just isn't uh, going to change. Instead, we believe that what you'll see become the differentiator is what you alluded to. It's the technology and the user experience. 
right? And, and, and that has a few different levels when you click a little deeper, right? It's everything from, you know, how does the user access the content? You know, is it a subscription model, right? Or is it a transactional buy or rent an episode, you know, type model uh, or series? You know, you know, like I said, uh, the, the, the big cable or satellite bundles that have been around for so many years and really have been the, the staple of, you know, the ecosystem, you know, that, and, and, and by the way, and that will continue to be an important value proposition for a lot of people. I mean, there are a lot of people who say, I perfectly fine paying my $150 to get all these different channels because you know I like a number of them. It's convenient. It's easy. They're all in one place, etc. Um, but there are also other people, you know, in underserved uh, groups uh, for which that model doesn't work. And you know, for those people, you start asking things like, oh, you know, are there you know smaller core packages of content that will work? Uh, where and how? you know, will users start preferring to watch content? For example, will it be, you know, increased viewing on mobile? Or is viewing in the living room, you know, always going to be the dominant mechanism? Uh, which devices will win out? You know, is it going to be the Apple TV? Is it going to be Roku? Is it going to be the set-top box from your cable company? You know, the list goes on and on. I mean, there's just a lot of different elements to the technology and the user experience. But we think that that is really where uh, we have to respond to the demand of users because content differentiation isn't enough at this point. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I actually, as you were saying that, I was thinking through my own experience I've started to watch a significant more amount of live sporting events actually on my new iPhone, right? The experience is good. It's completely mobile. Um, and if, you know, I'm on the road for business or I'm not able to, you know, sit down and properly kind of watch a game um, on, a, on a live TV, I can always pick up, you know, good HD quality on the phone itself. And I think when you when you think about the scope of something like mobile, there's going to be 3 billion people. There are 50 million people on the internet in 1995. There's going to be 3 billion people on mobile in 2020. Um, adapting to the change in experiences is a large part of the, is a large part of the business. So I hear you say, you know, content is a big piece, but not enough of a differentiator anymore, though, you know, a significant amount to play out kind of in that story. Viewing experience is a big piece and that can include, access issues, different types of platforms, different types of packages. What do you think, you know, are those kind of the pieces um, to, you know, to the, to the strategy or, you know, are there other, you know, what do you more broadly think about in terms of opportunities in media today? You know, what are the areas, if I were to ask you, uh, you know, what are the areas of the business you and your executive team kind of think about for investing in the future? Are those the spaces with, you know, tons of kind of nuances falling off or are there, you know, any other kind of big spaces that you guys think about? So the, you know, Hulu, uh, you ask, uh, timely that you ask, I should say, you know, Hulu's big announcement recently is we are coming out with a live service. You know, so in the same way that you can have your cable or satellite TV, you know, you can now get uh, that 
content over the internet through the Hulu app. So we'll offer, you know, not the hundreds and hundreds of channels that you would otherwise get for 150 bucks, but you know, we'll offer a core package of broadcast and cable networks, you know, along with uh, our own, you know, Hulu original content. Uh, and you know, the the content will include sports and news. And we plan to price it under forty dollars. Hmm. So that is something that we think is an area, you know, today and, and certainly as we get more into the future, that there will be a big demand for. You know, as people start to look at the current ecosystem and say, you know, we want alternatives uh, to what's out there today. I think the. The second area that we tend to think about in terms of, you know, future and and really opportunities for value, you know, as much as we focus on having the best content for all users, there's a ton of great content out there from many sources. So we know that one of the things that's going to be important is investing in personalization, you know, making sure that you know, through profiles that users can set up or, or other means that we are tailoring the experience uh, to the user in a way that it reaches them without them having to actively seek out what they want to watch. So, for example, you know, my wife can watch her, you know, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills um, and when I go on to Hulu, I won't get hit with a recommendation for, you know, keeping up with the Kardashians. Yep. Um, I, hope my wife, I hope my wife doesn't listen to, uh, <laughs> to this podcast. Don't tell her I said that. Um, you know, and that's just the first level of personalization. And eventually, not only will we factor in things like what you watch, but when and how you watch it. So in the morning... You know, you're prompted to watch your, you know, favorite news channel. In the evening, you know, you talked about being a sports fan. You know, you're prompted to watch, you know, your favorite NBA game. Uh, or, you know, you talked about being a mobile user and, and doing a lot of business travel. If you're on your mobile device, uh, uh, the people tend to watch, for example, you know, comedies and not dramas. So, you know, offering to uh, have you watch and prompt you to, have, to watch your favorite comedy uh, instead of your favorite drama. So that's the kind of thing, you know, that's the kind of user experience uh, that we are spending a lot of time and resources, you know, getting to that next level for users. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because, you know... I if I'm watching something on mobile, especially if it's not sports or so, it's typically something I want to use a passive part of my brain for that's typically lighter. Um, and if it's a drama or something more intense, I do actually want to see it on a larger screen um, and, and get a more immersive experience. So that's that's interesting. That's that's a space I think with personalization technology. There's there's actually a lot going in, and I'm gonna I'm gonna use that actually as a transition point to. Talk a little bit more about, you know, L.A. and uh, and and the tech scene you guys have out there, right? You know, L.A. hasn't historically been a startup hub, at least, you know, quite like your neighbors up north. Right. But 
in the last 10 years, it's really starting to find its own niche. And, and Be Home, to, I think most importantly for any city that's aspiring to be a startup, startup hub, valuable companies, you know, on a, on, a, on a timely basis, you know, Snap had its IPO this week, right? So talk a little bit more about the LA startup scene and, and how LA has been able to craft its niche. And I think particularly interesting, you know, if, if you can focus on it is I, I talked to a lot of folks and, you know, that are trying to create cities as innovation hubs. And I, I think the misdirection that a lot of people fire off in is everybody's trying to be the next Silicon Valley. And I don't think that's the right goal. I think to become a startup hub, cities should actually focus less on being kind of a classic catch-all general innovation hub and should go all in on their competitive strengths, right? Silicon Valley is a unique place and forever will be a unique place. But there's a lot of other areas that have very innate strengths that they can capitalize on. You know, I think of Atlanta, where I'm from originally, and Atlanta, not known to many, has, you know, one of the largest and most dense Fortune 500 ecosystems in the country. And so a lot of enterprise B2B startups actually do really well here. You know, I, I think another uh, another city um, that nationally isn't typically known for this, but has had a really cool approach on on this kind of building up an innovation hub lately has been Pittsburgh. You know, they've served up as being a pilot city for Uber self-driving cars and have actually leveraged a lot of the good research and talent out of Carnegie Mellon to make that possible. And a lot of additional AI investment and talent is actually going to Pittsburgh now and relocating. So they've, you know, they've taken an alternative approach and actually zeroed in on a fundamental technology advantage. Um, and a lot of interesting companies will actually probably relocate to Pittsburgh in the future because AI is going to be a very, very heavy piece of any type of business. So you know, I think LA obviously has a native advantage in this space, right? Being right there with Hollywood. But talk a little bit more about the LA tech scene, startup scene. You know how it's been able to craft its own advantage, um, and and what you think it needs to continue to do to improve. Sure. I mean, you you alluded to you know there are two obvious advantages to LA, right? Number one, you said it, you know, Hollywood, right? It's the music entertainment capital of the world, uh, and more and more tech companies see the value of getting into media uh, and that's why you know you see that with dating back you know Google and Apple you know more recently Facebook and you know Snapchat so you know traditionally tech companies are actually crossing over into media and that's an inherently natural advantage you know to LA you know, I think the other uh, the other native advantage that LA is trying to carve out for itself is, you know, it's hard to beat the lifestyle, right? I mean, you've got sunshine year-round, you've got, you know, it's great for the outdoors, you've got restaurants, you've got culture. I mean, I'm biased, but, you know, LA really has it all. And, you know, that's why you hear the term coined, you know, Silicon Beach, uh, because, you know, that is something that, LA startups have, have tried to use to attract uh, talent to relocate to Los Angeles. Now, all that said, you know, I think one of the interesting things that sometimes gets missed or, or really overlooked is you have to think about who you're trying to attract. And, you know, developer you know, engineering resources tends to always be the most constrained at any startup. Uh, the technology, you know, 
what a lot of media companies, I think, make the mistake uh, of doing is assuming that the tech talent will be drawn to LA because of all the glitz and the glamour. So at Hulu, you know, we, we often have this internal debate, sometimes even it's an external debate, are we a tech company or are we an entertainment company? And we cop out and say we're both, right? Um, and we have these, you know, fancy premiere parties with, you know, A-list celebrities and stars attending. And that appeals to half of the company. But to the other half, right, um, and I'm generalizing here a little bit, but, you know, the engineers and developers, they don't really care about that as much. And so you have to really be smart about identifying the strengths that are needed to a particular location, but not to the point where you ignore some of the fundamental, call it, you know, career, um, career attractions uh, to, you know, technology folks. And that's why, for example, we prioritize, uh, the, you know, a culture of, of innovation. And we have like a patent invention and rewards program that literally compensates and celebrates individual inventors at Hulu. And this is not something that a lot of media companies have, you know, um, but that's something that we think gives, you know, us a competitive advantage. It differentiates us from other video companies who think of themselves first as entertainment companies. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag and, and complicated, but, you know, there is no shortage of competition. Uh, for talent, and, and that's really something that you know every company in every city uh, you know tries to unlock. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's it's interesting, but it, you know, in hearing kind of what you're saying, it it almost breaks down to a formula which has two key parts, right? Which is you leverage the city that you're actually in and the culture that it speaks to. So whether it's you know L.A. and and Hollywood or you know, I was talking about Atlanta and a very kind of core enterprise ecosystem. That's one side, right? So it's being very particularized to the city's actual advantages, the culture of the city. And then the other side is just building up a raw core technical base. You know, I, we, the startup I was at saw it the same way, you know, exactly what you were alluding to, which is product and technology always takes longer to build. It always costs twice as much, right? So building up enough of a resource base, you know, helps alleviate a natural constraint. And then it, it sounds like it's all about, you know, I, I agree. It sounds like it's all about leveraging, you know, what the city's actual culture and, and advantages advantages are. So, you know, on that note, as a last kind of question on this topic, what do you, you know, taking a more macro and kind of 50,000 foot view, what do you think we see for tech in, in 2017? You know, what are the big stories? And I think, you know, I, I see I see an optimistic side and I see a pessimistic side. You know, on the optimistic side, I think there's two things. I think we're going to see a lot of activity in the financing environments. Um, I think we actually will see, you know, a tech wave return to IPOs and an increase in M&A. Um, I think depending on you know what the tax structure that comes out of Washington is, you'll you'll probably see repatriation. And even if you don't, you know, public tech companies already have a significant amount of cash on their balance sheets. Um, and so I think, I think the financing story is one story. I think the other story is, is the technology side, right? You know, we're seeing the maturation of mobile, but 
I think there's a possibility to see a new underlying tech stack start to go mainstream. You know, voice is picking up steam with Alexa, Google Home. We'll we'll see how that story plays out. I think on the pessimistic side is, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty given the turbulence in, in Washington. And, you know, regardless of what your political affiliations are, um, as you know very well, uncertainty is the biggest enemy in business, right? Um, calculated risks is is what business is all about. So certainly a lot of positive and negative could come from 2017 for tech. You know, how do you see it playing out? You know, I, I agree with everything you're saying. And, and, you know, I learned several months ago that, you know, political prognostication is kind of a fool's errand. Um, so, you know, who really knows? I think in, you know, tech and media, uh, there are two things right now that a lot of companies are focused on. You know, the first is consolidation, you know, kind of what impact that will have on the industry. You know, consolidation, kind of M&A, you alluded to it, you know, it's been on the upswing. I mean, if you go back, you know, several years ago, Comcast uh, bought NBC Universal. You know, earlier, um, you know, last year you saw Charter and Time Warner cable, you know, merge, um, Verizon and Yahoo, uh, most recently AT&T, you know, and Time Warner, uh, which actually, you know, owns a 10% stake in Hulu. So I think you'll start to see more integration, you know, as companies look for synergies and competitive advantages. And, you know, with any kind of consolidation like that, it's complicated. I mean, there are benefits to it. Um, and there can also be disadvantages to it from a consumer standpoint. Um, but, you know, do you think that that is something we'll, we'll continue to see more of uh, in 2017 and beyond? I think the other hot topic, you know, you mentioned Washington um, and a lot of the uncertainty there. I think the, the other hot topic that's got people buzzing, uh, and I tend to get asked this question at almost, you know, every uh, conference or, or, or panel that, I, that I'm on, it's about net neutrality and, and kind of what will happen to that because that obviously has a lot of implications for, you know, tech companies and media companies, particularly as those two industries converge. And, you know, there's the, the prevailing wisdom is that the new administration will repeal the net neutrality rules. You know, again, I never like to try and predict anything with certainty, but you know, at the very least, I think you'll see a spirited debate, you know, if or when uh, that happens. I mean, the FCC, you know, back when uh, this all started, they, re- they received something like 4 million public comments in support of net neutrality. And, you know, I, I believe that's the most comments they've ever received on any topic in its history. Uh, so I think you'll see a spirit of debate, but assuming repeal is successful, it'll be interesting to see whether the Republicans choose to maintain a slimmed-down set of protections. Historically, there's actually been bipartisan agreement, um, you know, against things like blocking and throttling and paid prioritization. And so I think that there is, you know, an interesting question as to, you know, how far or not you know, the Republicans will actually go. But the outcome of this process is of great interest to, you know, technology and media companies, you know, for obvious reasons. 
Yeah, and I think actually with with you know consolidation on the business side being something that is imminent, especially going into this year and beyond, some of those tangential issues, right, like a net neutrality, start to you know they already have big enough stakes and implications on their own. But when you have a, a significant uh, amount of companies in this space consolidating, these kinds of effects can end up having you know magnanimous uh, impact on on a particular industry or so. So. Agreed. It should be a it should be an interesting interesting issue to follow, and and we'll see how it unplays. So, you know, Chad, this has been a super interesting conversation on on all of the kind of different you know substantive elements of, of your career, the media industry, um, you know, all things kind of Hulu's business model. I'd love to finish off with the last question um, and get a little bit more to you know your personal side, which is, you know, if you had to distill the most important lessons you know, from your career and um, into a few observations, you know, what what would those observations be? Is it a mindset that you advocate young people have or internalize? Is it more of a tactical focus you encourage? Um, you know, if you had to give kind of the elevator pitch, what's the most critical thing you think people should focus on uh, in the early days of their career? Sure. You know, I, I, would, I would encourage people to avoid being overly tactical with their career path. I mean, the truth is, I didn't script how I got where I am today. And other GCs and execs I talked to all say the same thing. You know, I would focus people and advise them to concentrate on working hard and developing and expanding your skills in whatever job you're doing. I believe that if you do that, generally opportunities will find you. And when they do, you know, embrace the opportunities for growth. I mean, even if they take you outside your comfort zone, you know, don't be afraid to try new things. I, I, I notice um, a lot of, you know, young people who get comfortable with what they know best, and as a result, they're reluctant to branch out. But I've always made it a point throughout my career in life to diversify, you know, whenever I had opportunities, you know, because... Even if you don't know the exact answer, you know, a diverse background will help you ask the right questions, which is a hallmark of being, you know, a good GC or CEO or or other leader. Very cool. Well, Chad, this has been super helpful um, and a really fun conversation. So again, you know, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, We really appreciate it. My pleasure, Omin.